tonight we are talking about politics. Uh, yeah, politics. And, uh, and so we know that politics can be a very divisive issue. I don't know if you've ever had the, uh, the joy of having a family gathering and uh, having some political conversations that kind of got a little intense and maybe there was a truce. It's like, we're just not going to talk about this anymore. That can happen when it comes to politics. Uh, believe it or not, we've had that in our home, where there's been an issue that comes up. And do we agree on everything political? No, we don't. And so because this can be so intense of a subject, I thought we would start on the lighter side. And so hopefully a little humor. Um, a man by the name of Will Rogers, who lived a long time ago, wrote this. Everything is changing. You believe that everything's changing today? Well, back in whenever, like the middle of the 20th century, Will Rogers wrote, everything is changing. People are taking their comedians seriously and the politicians as a joke. Okay, a gratuitous laugh would be fine. It's just any time you want to do that. Okay, another, another comment. <laughs> It's so cold outside, I saw, saw a politician with his hands in his own pockets. Ooh, that's bad. Why is political correctness enforced on everyone but politicians? Ooh. And then, this is my favorite. George Washington is the only president who didn't blame the previous administration for his troubles. Because there was none, right, okay. Well, hopefully that was good for Lisa's smile, if not a laugh. I thought we would continue with a brief history of American politics in terms of the, the two-party system. For non-history buffs, I, will, I promise I will move through this very quickly, so just bear with me. It would stand to reason that the British political system influenced the system of the United States, after a tumultuous 17th century, the British monarchy was restored but limited in power. The commons and the lords ruled parliament, primarily focusing on the needs of the commoners, everyday people. Soon caucus parties emerged, the Whigs and the Tories, representing the most important model for what became the US party system. After reaching independence, the early emphasis in U.S. government was not a representation of the common people, but the rights of ownership. Tragically, the privileged property that the government strove to protect was African slavery. The caucuses developed quickly in new government and soon began to function like permanent parties. The first established party was that of the Federalists, with its leader, Alexander Hamilton. I'm just curious, how many have seen the musical Hamilton? Raise your hand. Okay, I'm very, we're very jealous of Chris and Nanan that have seen that great musical. Federalist policies focused on fostering commerce and industry. It sounds good. But Thomas Jefferson opposed Federalists and a strong central government. Jefferson founded the Democratic Republican Party in 1792. You heard right. The Republican Democratic Party, they were one in the same. My, how times have changed. By the 1820s, a new Democratic Party rose 
against remnants of the old Jefferson Party, which was now referred to as the Nationalist Republican Party, who adopted the name Whigs, borrowed from Britain in 1830. The origin of the Democratic Party was belief in a strict interpretation of the Constitution and a limitation of government powers. In other words, the Democratic Party and its origins were all about small government. In 1854, the Republican Party was founded by anti-slavery leaders. Realizing they needed more than the anti-slavery issue to win the 1860 election, they added a transcontinental railroad and free land to settlers going west to their platform and the result was that Abraham Lincoln was elected, which was a good thing. I'm not, I'm not going to be biased tonight, but I'm going to say that was a good thing, that Abraham Lincoln was elected. From the mid-18th century to the 1920s, the Republicans were the popular party. There was a Republican president that served in office from the middle of the 19th century until the 1920s, except for three different terms. Then the Great Depression hit, and that changed everything. Businesses had failed the people under Republican leadership, and the Democrats became, quote, the party of the people, with Franklin Roosevelt being elected president. The Democrats' focus was helping the poor and the middle class, encouraging the labor movement and big government the opposite of its founding ideal of small government. My family was staunch Democrats because my mother and father grew up children of parents that went through the Great Depression. And so it was all about the Democratic Party that, had a, that represented the party of the people and had initiatives to help the poor. And so Genghis Khan could have been running as a Democratic candidate and my mother would have voted for Genghis Khan simply because she was a staunch Democrat. She would vote the party line and we had many conversations through the years on this subject. It was a deep, that deep of a commitment to the party that helped the poor. Meanwhile, the Republicans took the position of small government, individual and state rights, tax cuts and reduced government spending. While the Democratic Party doesn't look like the party of Andrew Jackson, neither does the Republican Party today look like that of Abraham Lincoln. We're just about done with the history, so bear with me. The Democrats still refer to themselves as the party of the people, attracting immigrants, blue-collar workers, women, and minorities. Democrats tend to take a more liberal stand on important issues. They believe the federal government should take a more active role in people's lives, particularly those who are in need. Republicans tend to take a more conservative stand on issues. They believe that the federal government should not play a big role in people's lives. Most Republicans favor lower taxes and less government spending on social programs. They believe in less government intervention or interference, as they would say, in business and the economy. So what makes it very difficult today with the two-party system that we have, and there 
we recognize there are other political parties as well, but there's the two main political parties. What makes it so challenging is that there's blurry lines associated with politics. And there's the reality that some are socially liberal and fiscally conservative and vice versa. So where does one clearly belong as a follower of Christ? Which party does a Christ follower fit in is very complicated. For example, there are tensions for those who are pro-life but lean to a party that has strong ties to the NRA. For them, they lament the loss of life associated with abortion and the lack of support for sensible gun laws and strict background checks. So they do not feel at home in either party. I ask again, where does the follower of Christ belong? Or as Tim Keller recently wrote in a New York Times op-ed, how do Christians fit in the two-party system? Keller's answer is simply, they don't. The subtitle of his article gives explanation. The historical Christian positions on social issues don't match up with contemporary political alignments. A Christ follower just doesn't fit neatly in either political camp. So there's some questions that I think are fitting that we would ask ourselves on this issue. One question is this, should the church be silent? If it's not such a neat fit in either party and there are issues on both sides and it's like, should the church just pull back and be silent? Well, the answer is no. Silence means to be complicit with the status quo. To be silent is, in effect, to be political. For example, churches that were silent regarding slavery in the 19th century were actually supporting slavery by doing so. There needed to be that voice that was raised against slavery, and churches that were silent were basically complicit with the status quo, and that's not a good thing. The church should not be silent, but rather engaged in social issues. The second question is this, should Christ followers seek political positions? Should they run for office, the city council, and different opportunities to be in government? Well, the answer, I believe, is yes. We see this in scripture, we see that Daniel, we see that Joseph, that the Lord gave them favor and they had great influence for good by serving in government. This is one way of loving your neighbor by serving in a political position. The Lord may call one of you to, uh, to step up and to run for some form of a governmental office and that would be a good thing if the Lord puts that in your heart. The third question is this, and the answer is a little bit more extracted, should the Christian church identify with one political party as, quote, the only Christian one? And the answer that I would suggest is no, for not just one reason, but actually for several reasons. First of all, I believe the church should avoid the impression of if you become a Christian, then you need to join this fill-in-the-blank party. 
it gives those considering Christian faith a strong impression that to be converted, they need not only believe in Jesus, but become a member of a certain party. So there's, it's like strings attached to faith. If you do become a Christian, then it's assumed this is the Christian party and you just need to join this party. And that could really, would be a stumbling block to many people. They would just turn their back on even considering the claims of Christ. <clears throat> Second, most political positions are not matters of biblical command, but of practical wisdom. I believe there are some issues that the Bible speaks very clearly to. There's many issues that the Bible does not speak clearly to, but it's a matter of practical wisdom. For example, there are many different ways to assist the poor. The Bible clearly commands that we're to lift up the poor and defend the rights of the oppressed, yet does not give exact answers on how to do so for every time and place and every culture. We are to sort through the strategies of each party and look for wisdom in how to bless the poor and the oppressed. And then also, I believe it's best to avoid what would be considered package deal ethics. And what is what I mean by that? Well, another reason Christ followers should not be fully identified with any particular party is the problem of what British ethicist James Mumford calls package deal ethics. What is that? Well, increasingly political parties insist that you cannot work on one issue with them if you do not embrace all of their platform. This emphasis in package deals puts pressure on Christian people in politics. For example, following both the Bible and the early church, Christians should be committed to racial justice and the poor. No doubt about that. But also to the understanding that sex is only for marriage and for nurturing family. One of these views seems liberal and the other looks oppressively conservative. So I repeat, the historical Christian positions on social issues do not fit into contemporary political alignments. So what does a committed Christian do? If I confused you enough and you're like, well, just throw my hands up, what do we do? I think there's three options and one that I would suggest that you strongly consider tonight. The first option is just to withdraw and to be apolitical. I do not believe that this is a Christ-like option. Jesus, in the Good Samaritan parable in Luke 10, points to a man risking his very life to give material help to someone of a different race and religion. Jesus forbids us to withhold help to our neighbors, and this will inevitably require that we participate in the political process. We must be engaged. We can't just sit on the sidelines and be complicit to whatever is happening politically. The second option is to assimilate and fully adopt one party's whole package in order to have your place at the table. I don't think this is a great option either. If a Christ follower fully embraces one political party, they risk compromising their convictions and biblical teaching on certain issues. Again, this is true of either of the two major parties. 
So now we're squeezing you out of the process, but we say you gotta be involved in the process. So again, what gives here? Here's the third option. The third option is the option to not fully adopt one party's entire package. Seek wisdom through scripture, through prayer, to align with policies that demonstrate a love for your neighbor without compromising timeless biblical principles. Vote your conviction and then pray for those in authority over you. This leads us really to a summary statement and and then we'll close. And this is really what I call a mandate to pray. Whichever option you choose, and again, I would encourage you to strongly consider the third option. A Christ follower is instructed to pray for those in authority over you regardless of how you feel about them. Local, state, and national leaders. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. I urge you then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I do not believe a Christ follower should be critical of those serving in positions of authority over us. We can take that to the boss at work, the professor in the college classroom, mayors, governors, senators, congressmen and women, and the president of the United States or a king of a nation. I believe it's contradictory to this teaching that I just read from 1 Timothy chapter 2. How hard is this to put a governor on our lips that we would, not a governor like, you know what I mean. Something that would be, that would restrict us and put a clamp when we're tempted to criticize a person in authority over us. How hard is that? I believe we would all agree that is extremely hard to do extremely hard. I recognize that. I also suggest this is yet another countercultural principle from the Word of God. In our culture, it would seem at almost every point that the Christian response should be the opposite of what we see happening in culture. Again, you can take this down the line on almost every Thing that has to do with culture. We're to take a higher road, a different view. And scripture guides us in this regard. Again, to vote your conscience, vote your conviction, and then pray for whoever is elected. It may come under the umbrella of Matthew chapter 5, at verse 43, when Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Perhaps a modern interpretation of verse 44 could be this, love your enemies and pray for those who drive you crazy. And that could be true of the political world that we live in today. When you just shake your head and you don't know what 
rationale or what is happening in, in whatever information you're receiving at the moment that you take the high road and you love and you pray. And that's the default for us as followers of Christ. We love and we pray. We pray and we love. And when it's hard to love, we pray more. By the way, it's hard to criticize someone that you are consistently praying for. Have you ever noticed that? How it changes your attitude toward them? This is one reason, by the way, that we gather the first Wednesday of every month, as we will this Wednesday, to pray. We call for the people of Anchor, we call for the Christ community that we're in fellowship with to come and to pray for one hour a month for those in authority over us, for those that are ministering globally here and around the world, but to pray for our mayor, to pray for our governor, to pray for our president, for those in authority over us. Prayer matters. Prayer matters. That's why God has called us to be people of prayer. And again, it changes our heart as well as it does change circumstances. It does change people. And so, again, normally at this time of a, of a teaching, open the word. In fact, I'm really excited about our next series that starts in three weeks. We're going to be uh, opening the book of Genesis, and we're going to a new series called Ancient Stories Today. We're going to start with creation narrative and then move through the major themes of Genesis. And normally at this moment we have, we'll transition to a time of continued worship and prayer. We have people that would be down here at the front praying for you. Again, this is just a different kind of a day. And I, if, if this isn't really your cup of tea tonight, I do encourage you to come back and uh, for more of a, here's what the Word of God says and really extrapolating um, in a more of an expositional teaching. And so, uh, but I don't apologize for this either because I do believe that in the day in which we live, we need some direction from, from God's Word and we need some clarity on how do we handle what sometimes can just appear to be uh, ultra crazy and what size and not only when I say that I also mean about where do we land on these issues and do we affiliate only with one party or not and how do we navigate our way through these issues as the people of God because as we sang earlier there is only one king forever and there is a way to honor God in these things and not to pull back to retreat and be complicit and not necessarily just to affiliate and do a, we're, we're in on this entire platform for a party, which I believe, again, can be very, uh, very much, uh, I, I think, uh, a, a situation that, that we would not necessarily feel at home in. And so I wanted to also, as we close, i like for us to stand together, but I did want to just uh, identify the sources here. If you'd like to read the full article by Tim Keller, you can pull that up on the internet. This is also in our notes on version in the outline. Uh, and uh, also the history of the two-party system by Mark Laus. So anyway, I hope this was a little helpful. It'll give you some, uh, some uh, things to think about with regard to politics and what does the Bible say 
and what would please, what would be the heart of Jesus in these things. And so let's pray together.